thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You tell anyone who'll listen about their great service. But we're the only ones who'll reward them for it. It's the Small Business Awards with Softline Pastel. Small Business, Big Rewards. Get your nominations in now. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead essay. .co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Chris, it's so nice to speak to you. Where have you been? Good morning. Um, yeah, I've actually been uh, in another part of Africa looking at big animals and things and uh, wandering around in the bush and making some radio programs about the amazing wildlife and the amazing plants and animals and things that, that live in the middle of nowhere in Africa. That's fantastic. Chris, did you have a great time? It sounds like it. I did. Uh, I'm now on enforced starvation diet because uh, I <laughs> ate far too well. Yeah, I've seen the way you eat. You give Thomas a run for his money, hey? Yeah, actually, uh, that's true, but not at the moment because, um, uh, as I say, I did eat extremely well and I, I do feel like I'm going to have to invest in a new set of clothes if I don't reverse this trend. <laughs> so I'm now reversing the trend. <laughs> Good luck. It's not easy. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, Chris, we spoke about this a couple of months ago, I remember, but now there's definitive proof that uh, there is water on Mars. Can you tell us about that? Um, well, this is a big press release that came out from NASA last night. It's a paper which has been published in the journal Science. It's by a researcher at the University of Arizona. He's called Alfred McEwen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what he and his team spotted and have published is that over the late spring, summer and early autumn weeks of Mars, they see these funny lines appearing. They call them recurring slope lineae. And these lines tend to occur on steep slopes, usually on the edges of craters, for example, on the sides of those craters that face the equator. In other words, where the sun shines and the surface temperature can rise to as much as 25 degrees Celsius during the warm periods on Mars. And what they're saying is, that they think that these lines, which they spotted from space, they were spotted with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a probe orbiting Mars, they think that they're evidence of water running on the surface or just under the surface of the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, they've done some quite careful analyses of these lines, which measure between half a metre and, say, five metres wide, and as many as hundreds of metres in length. They actually grow over the course of, of two months by 200 metres in length, so they grow quite fast. They've actually gone over them with various probes to look at the spectrum, the color of light coming from the surface, and they can't detect any signature of water on the surface, which is a bit strange. So what this suggests is that these lines could be because there's water under the surface, which as the surface heats up, water melts, and it forms a sort of strong salt solution, which rises up through the subsurface. When it gets close to the surface, it then, as the temperature falls overnight, freezes again, and this forms a sort of 
slide, if you like, a flat surface, and then other material slides down that icy surface and makes these lines. That's one of their theories. But the, at the moment, it, it's certainly an initial observation, and these things don't happen everywhere. There's 20 mm -hmm. candidate sites on the surface of the planet where they're spotting them. And the other theories are that they could be CO2, carbon dioxide, which is uh, at such cold temperatures as you get in some places on Mars, running either under the surface or along the surface. They're discounting that one, though, on the basis that it's happening in certain restricted sites and in warm sites, which wouldn't really fit. It could also be rock slides or something. But then again, why are they so restricted to just certain parts of the planet? Or maybe they're dust devils, like many whirlwinds. Mm. But again, why are they so restricted to certain places on Mars? So now the question is, if this is water, what's the composition of that water under the surface? Mm -hmm. And could anything be living in it? Very interesting indeed. All right, uh, Chris, and the story about turning skin cells into brain cells, is that possible? Well, I saw this and thought, wow, what a wonderful piece of research. It's by researchers at Columbia University in New York. It's a guy called Asa Abelievich, and it's in the journal Cell this week. Um, what they actually do is they take skin cells, these are cells called fibroblasts, from humans, not just healthy humans, but they've also tested cells from people who have Alzheimer's disease, the dementing illness, and they add to those cells using a modified virus three genes which are normally running in certain parts of the brain. And when you add these genes to these skin cells, it triggers the skin cells to convert themselves into nerve cells. And these cells behave like nerves, they look like nerves, they respond to drugs in the same way that nerves do, and the researchers were even able to be able to implant the cells into the brains of mice that were developing. So they were in utero mice. Mm -hmm. And then when the mice were born, they could look in the brains later and find these human-derived new nerve cells wired into the brains of the mice. And the, the, I mean, this shows that you're actually producing functional neurons by this reprogramming action. But the other thing it shows that, that's really intriguing is that they were able to take the Alzheimer's patients produce nerve cells from them and the behavior of those nerve cells is biochemically really similar to the behavior that you see in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. In other words, you've got a way of making cells that faithfully model the disease. And the other way of doing this that's been championed previously was to take, a, say, a skin cell Mm -hmm. and then turn it first into a stem cell and then turn the stem cell back into a brain cell. But people have discounted this as a valid way of doing this because when you make these new cells via that route, they acquire lots of genetic changes and this can muddy the waters and make it very difficult to study diseases, for example. This approach is much gentler and kinder to the cells. So you actually get a very faithful model of what's actually going on inside a person. So A, you could study the disease they've got, mm -hmm. but also you could start asking questions like, well, if I put this person on this drug, what will it do to their cells? Will it make them better or will it more likely accelerate the disease? Because not all diseases are equal and not all people are equal. Mm. Some drugs work in some people and not in others. Jeez, you've just answered a question that's just popped through on the SMS screen saying, uh, really, why is it that when I have a tablet, when I have a headache, I have to take different tablets from my mother when uh, the ones that she takes are not working for me? That's an SMS. Yeah, it, it sort of is exactly that, this whole concept that we all look different because genetically we are all different. Every single person on the planet is unique with the exception of people who have an identical twin or triplet or more. And that means that if you look different on the outside, biochemically you are going to be subtly different on the inside. And drugs are a very blunt instrument. When we make a drug, we make a molecule 
certain shaped chemical which fits the majority of the population, but there will therefore be people mm. in the population for whom that particularly shaped molecule is not an ideal fit for them. And sure. it's a bit like with drugs. You going into a shoe shop and saying, I'd like a pair of shoes, please, and the person taking the first pair of shoes off the shelf and just giving them to you without measuring your feet and going, wear these. That's exactly what we do pharmacologically with drugs like headache pills. Mm. We just assume that one size fits all. And what's coming now in the future is that people are beginning to ask, well, are there some genetic tests we could do on people to see how they are structured internally? Because there will be subtle differences. And then choosing the right treatment tailor-made to the individual. It's a wonderful idea, hopelessly expensive to deliver and a long way off. But we are really beginning to get there because there are now tools in place to begin to ask questions, especially where really expensive drugs and things like cancer therapies are concerned. Mm-hmm. Anne in Puckwood, hi. Hi. Um, I once put a muffin in the microwave for too long. And they always say that microwaves don't cook from the inside out. But when I put this one in, when I opened the uh, microwave, there was... Um, smoke coming out of the muffin. It looked absolutely perfect. It still had the cake on the outside. When I took it outside and cut it in half, it was charcoal in the middle mm-hmm. and about <laughs> two millimeters of cake on the outside. Yeah, been there, done that. Chris, why does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something I might have cooked. Um, or at least some of the experiments we were doing at the school in Joburg last month. Um, the reason for this is although people do say microwaves cook things from the inside out, that's sort of half true half myth. Mm-hmm. The way a microwave oven works is that it creates a standing wave of microwaves which go from one side of the oven across to the far side, bounce off and come back. And when we say standing wave, what we mean, if you've ever taken, say, a skipping rope that someone's holding at one end and you've got the other end and you shake it at a certain rate, you'll see that if you shake it in the right way, eventually you'll get to what looks like a wave pattern standing still in space. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. And the microwave does exactly the same thing in the oven. In other words, there are tall bits and low bits of the wave, and then mm-hmm. there are other bits where it doesn't appear to be moving at all, if you imagine yes. the skipping rope analogy. Now, the microwave oven, with that microwave pattern, is making water molecules in the food or whatever you put into the microwave actually vibrate. And they will vibrate the most where the waves are tallest or deepest, and they will vibrate the least where the waves are Along, the sh- along a straight line where, where basically where on your skipping rope it would look like it wasn't moving. So when you put your food in there, if the food happens to be in a place in the microwave where the centre of the food coincides with the peak or trough of one of the waves, then you're going to see lots of water getting very excited, therefore very hot, lots of heat being generated in that bit of the food, whereas the bit next door will make much less heat, therefore will be less well cooked. So microwave heating is very patchy, but it doesn't necessarily cook from the center outwards. And that's why you put a turntable in a microwave oven, because then you move the food through this standing wave, and all of the different bits of food therefore see the peaks and troughs of the waves where the water molecules vibrate the most and get the hottest. Geez, thanks for asking that question, and I'll stop being so frustrated when I defrost chicken, and then it cooks on the one half, but it's still frozen on the other, and I don't know what to do. That is really interesting, though, because (laughs) we did an experiment on the naked scientists. In fact, you can look it up. We did a kitchen science experiment experiment, makerscientist.com slash kitchen science, where we um, put a, a, a glass of water and an equivalent weight of water in the form of ice in a microwave oven, and we turned it on and asked which one will melt first. Will the ice turn into water before the water boils, or vice versa? And amazingly, you will find that the water will boil before the ice even melts. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is that when you've got water in the form of ice, the molecules are locked in, in place. They're tightly bound to each other, so they can't vibrate very much. And therefore, the water molecules don't get hot in the ice very quickly, whereas water that's in a free liquid can vibrate very fast and get very hot. So you can absorb lots of energy by liquid water, but you absorb energy into ice much more slowly. And therefore, you, if you put frozen food into the microwave, that's why it appears not to do anything for a long while. And then suddenly bits of it will be cooked to death and other bits will still be frozen right next door. And this is important with ready meals and things, not ready meals. Um, because, uh, when you put them in the microwave, um, you can have literally a block of ice, food that's not properly cooked, right next door to some that appears to be boiling hot. And if there are microorganisms that could give you food poisoning in the frozen bit, then they haven't been deactivated. So that's why you have to cook things that are, that are frozen when you're defrosting them very thoroughly with a microwave oven. Let's go to Patrick in Edgemead. Hi. Hi, Louis. Mm. Chris, I just wondered what determines whether we're going to be left-handed or right-handed when we're born. Hello, Patrick. Um, the answer is we think genetics. There is an amazing book which was written by a guy called Chris McManus. He is a professor of psychology at University College in London, and he won the Wellcome Trust's Book Prize Award and then the Novartis Book Prize Award for his book, Right Hand, Left Hand. And this is one of the best science books I ever read. It's fantastic. Mm. And it's all about why we're left-handed or right-handed, but also not just us, but the world around us. Because if you drill down and look into the chemicals we're made of, they have handedness. The sugars that we burn in our cells have right-handed forms and left-handed forms. It turns out that we uh, burn sugars that are right-handed. We can't use sugars that are left-handed. We use amino acids, the building blocks that make our proteins, which are left-handed, but we can't use the right-handed or mirror image equivalent of those amino acids, but some bacteria can. So there's handedness all over the place. And Chris McManus um, makes the point in his book that he is right-handed, but he's got two twin daughters, one of whom is left-handed and one is right-handed. And other people in his family have been left-handed. For instance, in my family, my daughter is quite clearly now at the age of four left-handed, but both of her parents are right-handed. My father was left-handed. So what Chris McManus says is that this does not fit with a simple single gene controlling it. It's not one gene that's a left-handedness gene. Instead, what seems to happen is there's probably two genes. He calls them a C gene and a D gene. And what they do is influence the probability of left-handedness happening without actually dictating whether it does or not. So it's a bit like loading the dice. If you have one of these genes, it loads the dice. If you don't have it, it's just a random dice roll as to whether or not you become left-handed. And when you are left-handed, what's actually happening is that one part of your brain um, becomes dominant, decides Mm. that it's going to be the dominant hemisphere. And in people who are right-handed, that's your left brain. And it's also the side of the brain where your language function is located. So the part of my brain I'm using to speak with you right now is my left broker's area. So that's my left side of my brain is my dominant hemisphere where language originates. Mm -hmm. In people who are left-handed, in a minority of them actually, you switch that language over to the other side, but in some there there is right-sided brain dominance. And we think about 90% of the population are Mm right-handed, 10% are left-handed, and the same number has existed for thousands, if not millions of years. Um, We think that early human ancestors had brain asymmetry and handedness as well. And if you go to cave paintings, and this was done in Montpellier in France, Um, you will find where people have made paintings where they've held paint in one hand 
and use their other hand as a template to paint around on the wall, right. same kind of stuff as you see kids do in play school, um, you find that, again, about 90% of the population in those days would have been right-handed because they would have blown the paint with their right hand and drawn around their left hand when they put it on the cave wall, same as you get with, with kids in play school today. Fantastic. And the name of the book again, Left left Hand, Right Hand. Yeah, right? it's called Right Hand, okay. Left Hand. Oh, right, right Hand, Left Hand. Left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I've put a link and a review of it on The Naked Scientist. So if people go to nakedscientist.com, it's my website, there is a section that says Science Books. And if you look in there, there's, there's the review of, of Right Hand, Left Hand. Fantastic okay. book. Thank you very much. John in Fouries. Hello. Mm. Hi, Didi. How are you? Fine, John. Chris, how are you? Hello, John. I'm good, thanks. Good, good. Uh, I actually have a question. There's someone in my household who seems to snore while they're awake, but they can't hear it. So is it possible to snore while you're wide awake? Okay. Well, what is snoring? Well, snoring occurs when the soft tissue, which is around your throat, at the back of your throat, closes in so that when you breathe in, the soft tissue obstructs, at least partially, the flow of air. And this causes turbulence. And when you have turbulence in in an airflow, then things try to move around. And that causes the tissue to vibrate. And as a result, you then hear noise. Because if you've got uh, non-streamlined flow, turbulent flow, you will have um, vibrations happening. And that's why things that are turbulent make noises. So when you're sleeping, because all your muscles relax and your posture relaxes, it's more likely that the soft tissues will flop in front of your airways and vibrate in this way. People who put on too much weight or have other anatomical reasons why this could happen tend to snore more. During the daytime, there's no reason why you couldn't have a sort of snore uh, if you are in such a, or if you have a sort of throat structure which is slightly obstructed or you have a lot of soft tissue around your neck, for example, which is pushing in on your airways, it's possible. It just happens more when you go to sleep because all your muscles relax and this causes the airway to, to close up even more than it would because you're not compensating by adopting a posture that keeps it as open as possible. Thank you very much, John. Thanks indeed. Uh, I don't know if you should tell that person whether they're snoring or not. You may just uh, lend up injured yourself. Maybe leave them alone to snore to their heart's content. Let's go to Tabi. So in Johannesburg, hi. Hi, Rudy. How are you? Fine, thanks. I'm good, thank you. I actually wanted to find out from uh, the naked scientist, what's the difference in smell? Like if I'll go into the house while my wife is cooking and I'll go back to my car and I'll still smell that my wife's uh, cooking uh, in the car, right? But I'll go to the loo, do my job, Come out, come into the car, and no one will tell that I, I came from the loo. So what is the difference in smells? So the one smell <laughs> follows you and the other one doesn't. Uh, doesn't let's yeah. be grateful for that. Yes, <laughs> let's, I was thinking just that. Yeah. Um, the thing is that it all comes down to, well, what is the smell? Smells are clusters or combinations of molecules, volatile molecules, which are given off by things in the environment. And what we experience as a smell is the mixture or combination of those molecules. So if you think of it as light instead for for an example, when we see light from the sun, it looks white. And that's because it's a mixture of lots of different colors of light, which when we mix them together, we see it as white light. If we mix white and red together, we get what we see as pink. If you think of now a smell as molecules, if I take certain combinations of molecules, I get a certain smell. And the more of those molecules there are in that particular proportion, the stronger that smell is. 
And not all molecules are the same size. Some are big and heavy, some are much lighter. And therefore, according to whatever it is that you're smelling, according to the composition of that smell, it will linger for longer. It will also stick to things better or it will diff, diff, uh, diffuse and disappear sooner. So smaller molecules don't need as much energy to break away and disappear, whereas big heavy ones tend to cling, for thing, cling to things for longer. So it could be that uh, what your wife is cooking up is a whole lovely combination mm. of beautiful flavors, which have got lots of big heavy molecules in them, and there's lots of them, so it's a very strong smell. This soaks into your clothing, and or your hair and sticks to other things like skin and then when you walk away from that environment you slowly ooze it back off again and you can still smell it and when you've been in the loo it's possible that you produced slightly less of these particular odors and you didn't stay in the loo for quite so long so you had less of it impregnating your clothes and skin and therefore the amount you actually had to ooze away later was lower thanks thanks oh, thank, thank god for everyone else <laughs> and so there wasn't so much of a smell Thank you very much, Tabiso. And on that note, let's take a break. Liesl, we'll come back to your call in a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Liesl in Randburg. Hi, guys. Love mm. the show. Thank you. Um, I wouldn't classify myself as a severe sinus sufferer, Chris, but I have noticed that when I bend forward to, let's say, pick washing up from the floor, that sometimes my eyes water. And I was wondering uh, why that would be. Thanks, guys. I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Hi, Liesl. I hope that that's not because you've got a terrible backache and whenever you bend over, you go, <laughs> um, No, the reason for this uh, could be that you've got a tear duct obstruction. Um, the way it works is that you produce tears from your lacrimal gland, which is just on the upper outer side of your eye, and this adds a fluid in the form of tear film to the eye through some openings. The tears run across the surface of the eye, and they drain down a sort of eye plug hole, which is a little punctum, which is on the inner surface on the lower eyelid. So if you look along your lower eyelid, close to where it meets your nose, you'll see a tiny black dot there. Sometimes there's more than one black dot, so some people have more than one. And that is the opening to your naso-nose lacrimal tear duct. And it drains the tears out of there and down into your nose. And if, when you lean forward for some reason, this is unable to grab the tears out of your eyes, which are continuously being produced at a constant rate and drain away at a constant rate into your nose, where you then swallow them, if for some reason that uh, doesn't continue to drain the tears when you're leaning forward, then the tears will collect on the front of your lower eyelid and then try and drip out of your eye. Um, or they just overwhelm the uh, punctum, the ability to drain the tears, when you then stand up straight again because the tears are coming out continuously. Mm. So if, if there's a period when they don't drain for a short while, there's extra tears in the eye now and they've got nowhere to go. So they might just run down your face. So it might just be the, the shape of your face or it may be that there has been something that's obstructed it in the past. But if it happens in both eyes, that's quite unlikely and it's more likely that it's just an anatomical thing in you that they don't drain quite as fast as they do in the next person. Chris, I think there's a simple answer to Liesl's problem. She must just not bend down. How's that? Well, don't do the washing. She said she, you notice she said she bends down to pick up washing. So this is a very good excuse not to have to do any washing and that someone else should do it for her instead. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. We'll chat to you next week. We're happy you're back. Oh, I'm delighted to be back. It's good to talk to everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. This.
conversation with him will be available as a podcast. Uh, we get inquiries all the time. It will be available as a podcast, not immediately when we get off air, but around half past one, two o'clock, you may be able to download it. If you want to find out more about the Naked Scientists themselves, go to www.thenakedscientists.com. It's www.thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.